Hello, and welcome back to the Whiskey Rebels, the only podcast about alcohol where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackbill. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And today we're back with yet another balanced, sober discussion about the philosophical, economic, and regulatory history of alcohol. So today we'll be discussing the history of French wine and the many modern day laws that govern its production and distribution. France is arguably probably the most important region of the world, at least for the modern development of wine. Um, and they've kind of got, you know, their heads in the air about it. And possibly as a result, uh, the modern... They've got their heads in the air about it? Yeah, they're a little, they're a little cocky. I don't know. <laughs> is that a term? Is, I don't know their noses in the air. Are noses we... in the air? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're trying I to I say that even, they had their heads in the air. I don't even know my terminology. Around. But, you know, possibly because of that, uh, the modern regulatory system within France and the EU is complicated and pretty strict. Um, but before we get started with a short history of French wine... Quick disclaimer for uh, the listeners, I'm going to apologize in advance for all three of us for our inevitable, terrible butchering of different French names and terms. Yeah, this what I love about this podcast is giving me the opportunity to mangle so many beautiful languages. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's uh, there's archaeological evidence to suggest that the Celts were the first to cultivate the uh, the grapevine in Gaul, uh, and that was about as early as 10,000 BC. Wow. But uh, French wine, as we know, it began in the 6th century BC with the founding of Massalia by uh, Greek immigrants from uh, Fakai, I think, in Asia Minor. Um, Okay. Okay. One of those. That's Greek. That's not even French. Um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, And to their understanding, the vines grew best in the same climate that would support uh, olive and fig trees. So most of the early uh, vineyard planting was in the warm Mediterranean coastal areas. Uh, and early on, they believed that northern regions of France couldn't support grapevines. Yeah, and and uh, under Roman law in the first century, the majority of the wine consumed in the area was required to be Italian in origin. So the the Gauls did not produce that much of their own wine, um, and it wasn't really until the first century A.D. that there was a record of Gallic wine being of any note or renown, really. And around this time, uh, viticulture began to spread. Okay, that's a pretentious word for just like wine production. It's the but, correct uh, word for wine production. <laughs> viticulture began to spread to other areas of Gaul, which is modern-day France, beyond areas where the olive and the fig would grow. And this was largely because of the high demand for wine and, and the cost of transport from Italy or Massalia. Um, because, you know, back in the time of the ancients, ye if you wanted times. to... Ye olden times. Well, this was even before ye olden times, but... Uh, <laughs> back back then, if you wanted to get something somewhere, you had to put it on a ship, and it's hard to sail a ship across land. So, um, <laughs> pretty sure they had other methods hard of to impossible. Across yeah, the you land. can you can take it across the Roman roads, but you'd have to conquer the whole place first yeah. and kill all the natives and Romanize them. Anyway, uh, <laughs> a suitable variety of grape was found that was called the Baturica. And that's the ancestor of the modern Cabernet varieties, which in my savage, uh, uncultivated opinion is the best kind of wine. So That's fair. I don't know anything about wine, uh, except what I researched for this podcast. <laughs> uh, so with the decline of the Roman Empire uh, brought a lot of sweeping changes to the Gallic region, um, as the region was invaded by Germanic tribes from the north who were familiar with wine. Um, but by the time Charlemagne established his kingdom in the late 8th century, Power in France was pretty polarized between the northern and southern regions. Um, so unlike the Mediterranean south, where grapes were easy to cultivate and wine was plentiful, uh, it was kind of flowing throughout all socioeconomic uh, peoples. Yeah, they drank uh, it like water in Italy. Yeah, the more 
kind of wine wine challenged regions of the north uh, saw wine as a luxury item and a symbol of status so it became very much kind of that that symbol of like the holy grail of wine was was very much real then um, and as we discussed in our podcast on uh, on episode on religion uh, the influence of the christian church also enhanced the image of wine in france um, as it was a very integral part with uh of the eucharist as we discussed um, pretty thoroughly and and wine was also important for pagan rituals as well so it wasn't it was had this religious count, uh, aspect but there was also kind of a socio socio economic uh kind of status symbol too the the religion connection was a big deal um, in fact during the middle ages uh, monks maintained vineyards and more importantly they conserved winemaking knowledge and skills during that you know, often very turbulent period uh, monasteries had the resources the security and the motivation to produce a steady supply of wine uh, both for for celebrating mass and for uh, generating income uh, so during this time, the best vineyards were owned by monasteries, and their wine was considered to be pretty much the best. Uh, after the 1305 election of Pope, Pope Clement V, uh, which moved the papacy from Rome to uh, Avignon, did I get that one right? Um, yeah. We're really getting into some like deep cuts here with like yeah. the, 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 <laughs> the papal schism and everything. Like, we're just like gl- glossing over that, about yeah. the wine. <laughs> like, but, uh, yeah, but when the papacy moved... Uh, uh, the wines of the Rhone and Burgundy regions received a higher profile, and when uh, Petrarch wrote to Pope Urban the Pope Urban V uh, in 1367, pleading for his return to Rome, uh, the Pope noted that one obstacle to his request was that the best Burgundy wines uh, could not be had south of the Alps. Yeah, because it's all about the wine. I mean, that seems like an acceptable place, reason to have the papacy somewhere. When you're the leader of the temporal church, it's all about the wine. Um, <laughs> anyway, after. The French Revolution, skipping ahead. kind of a yeah, we're skipping about four hundred years. <laughs> I just told you it was a short history. <laughs> yeah, well, after the French Revolution in the late seventeen hundreds, many of the vineyards owned by the church and other nobles were confiscated by the revolutionary government because you know they were symbols of uh, well of the past. I, w- I want to say bourgeoisie, but that was a little later. Yeah, that was later. That was with Marx. But um, they were confiscated by the revolutionary government. And this probably did lead to a diminished quality of the wine throughout the country because they had pushed out the talented old winemakers that had been doing it in monasteries for centuries and replaced them with radical, you know, newbies. Um, Hipsters, probably. Yeah. However, during this time, there was, well, we're basically hipsters. Not really. I don't know. But during this time, there were emerging technologies and winemaking practices that actually eventually would improve the quality of wine uh, available in France. Um, in 1801, Jean-Antoine Chaptal, the Minister of the Interior for Napoleon, compiled all this knowledge into a treatise that he called the Pate Thierry... Don't even try. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to butcher this. Uh, oh Traité Thierrique et Pratique sur la Couture de la Vigne. Which was, I said with more of a Spanish accent. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, romantic included his... Yeah. Anyway, this treatise he, he wrote, the, the English translation is the Theoretical and Practical Treatise on the Cultivation of the Vine. And this included... It's almost uh, more pretentious in English. Yeah, it is a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, this included Jean-Antoine Chaptal's... Uh, see, I can pronounce that perfectly. I don't know. His advocacy of adding sugar to the wine to increase alcohol levels, which today is a process that we know as chaptalization. 
Um, and by the mid-19th century, the wine industry of France was enjoying a golden age of prosperity because of these kind of improvements that had been discovered over the past hundred years. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, all golden ages must come to an end. It actually came to an end pretty fast uh, due to a series of unforeseen events. Uh, it started in the 1850s with the introduction of powdery mildew, or a thing called oidium, uh, which greatly reduced vine yields and affected grapes' skin color, so they really couldn't make a good wine out of it. Mm -hmm. um, a solution to the, that problem was discovered in 1857 when Henri Marais... It's pronounced Henri Marais. Henri Marais, whatever. ...devised the technique of sulfuring vines to combat the oidium. Um, but as, just as the uh, French winemakers were recovering, a tiny louse known as the phylloxera... Phylloxera. Phylloxera, that's not even French, I don't think, was uh, imported from, no, North, Latin. from North America. Um, the solution to this ap epidemic also came from North America as they uh, decided they could graft uh, the naturally resistant American rootstocks to the European vines... Um, unfortunately, you kind of brought back with them more North American problems. Um, and so while these, this grafting technique kind of helped stave off the, the lice problem, it also brought with it the fungal disease of downy mildew this time instead of powdery mildew um, in 1878. And there was a black rot problem in the 1880s. So they really went from this kind of golden age of we really, really know how to make wine really well and make a lot of money off of it to just complete devastation um, of their vineyards throughout the mid 1800s like how crazy. how bad was it was it like did um it legitimately like knock their wine i'm probably pulling back? this number out of my butt but it's i think it was like 60 or 70 percent it was something just really insane. that's yeah. that is incredible yeah so uh, in the 19th century, the French government commissioned uh, Louis Pasteur, uh, the noted French hero of getting gross stuff out of drinks, oh, yes. uh, to conduct a study on the problems plaguing the French wine industry. Uh, so during the three to four years that Pasteur spent studying wine, he observed and explained the process of fermentation, um, kind of noting that it was living organisms, specifically the yeast, that convert uh, sugar and the, the sugar in the grape into alcohol. Uh, so he also discovered the presence of glycerol, glycerol? yeah, glycerol, and, mm -hmm. glycerol whatever, glycerol. and uh, succinic acid in the wine and the uh, beneficial process of adding tartaric acid during winemaking. The, uh, the results of past year's studies revolutionized the French understanding of winemaking and it eventually spread to other wine regions across the globe. Yeah. It is, is kind of nice that they, they had this kind of disaster, but they were still able to kind of keep their studies going and really... You know, kind of what they learned early in the 1800s with Chaptal, 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 yeah. uh, and kept that going. And really, even though you know economically they may not have been in a great period, it seems like at least scientifically they're kind of keep, able to keep their wine, yeah, their I never, wine industry going. I never realized Louis Pasteur was so like influential in the in saving wine. <laughs> I mean, he did. Anyway, it was like he was pretty much influential. Yeah. yeah. He saved <laughs> milk, he saved wine. He's well, all right. There's lots of people that would say raw milk is better, but those people Those people also are... think vaccines cause autism. Some some of them do. I actually have you ever had like raw milk? Actually, no. no. I've wanted it's, to try it, it. It I mean, it's obviously it's more dangerous, but it tastes like better. Yeah. It's like, it's just like it tastes ever so slightly better. Milk, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, but the 20th century brought two world wars which had just devastating effects on many french wine regions um and this brought a sort of a renewed focus on reorganization uh of the country's wine industry and along with new competition which threatened treasured french brands like champagne and bordeaux these 
factors led to the development of the Appellation d'Origine Controlée, uh, or the AOC system, in 1935. Yeah, so there was a lot of, I know, around this time there was a lot of competition from like the New World. So you had um, both in North and South America there were a lot of wines that were coming around. Um, they were kind of challenging the French the French name, um, and so they really thought this classification system was going to be necessary as a kind of way of saying like all right there's a wine in a jug but it's it you know it's french wine and there's actually very strict laws um around the system so it's governed today it's governed by a powerful oversight board called the uh uh institut national something 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 institut national des appellations d'origine yeah so it's the the governing board that uh des origines over the aoc um, we're going to call it INAO for short. Yeah. Um, and by French law, this organization has the sole authority to rule on matters uh, related to the quality of French wine. Um, but since 1990, it was also given some uh, you know, regulatory authority to govern, govern other agricultural products such as cheeses, butters, and meats. I'm kind of the idea of anything that's very French and kind of ages is kind of the idea, I believe. Um, and so the, while the main purpose of AOC AOC, AOC uh, though, is to regulate the use um, of noteworthy names of wines and cheeses. Um, so it primarily delimits graph, uh, geographic area entitled to produce such a product. Um, but not all French wines are strictly regulated by the AOC classification system. There are a few other classification systems. So prior to 2012, uh, French wine law included four categories, two falling under the European Union's Table 1 category and two falling falling under the EU's uh, quality wines produced in, spe- in specified regions uh, designation. Yeah. yeah. I guess you kind of abbreviate that uh, Quipser. Um, QWPSR. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the uh, Vinditable, that's Vinditable. Right. Yeah. yeah. That was the uh, lowest classification. Um, it only requires the wine to be from France, uh, but not designated as from a specific region of the country or made from a particular variety of grape. And the uh, Van de, de Pies? Van de Pies? Van de P. Van de P. Those wines come from a specific region, but were subject to less restrictive regulations than AOC wines. Uh, so, for example, it allowed producers to distinguish wines that are made using grape varieties or procedures uh, other than those required by AOC rules. So, in order to maintain a dis- distinction uh, from Van de Table. Mm-hmm. Uh, the producers had to submit the wine for analysis and tasting, and the other uh, wines had to be made from certain varieties or blends. Yeah, and, and just to translate those two, um, Van de Table is um, table wine, mm-hmm. and Van de Pie, or Van de P. Uh, it's, well, it's the French have this weird A. It probably depends Van de on Pie. what part of France you're yeah, Maybe. Uh, but that one means country wine. So, mm-hmm. um, But they're both technically table wines, or yes. were. Yeah, well. Prior to 2012. Yeah, because in 2012, well, we're going to talk about that, but yeah. The two categories falling under the uh, QWPSR designation, which is the EU's designation, uh, were AOC wines and Vente de Limite de Qualité Supérieure, which stands, the acronym there is VDQS wines. And we told you this this episode is just going to be rife with French words and acronyms, so if you're getting lost... um, so am I. <laughs> but, uh, We're all a little lost. But the VDQS classification was basically like a, a waiting room for wines that were of a greater status than Vendepi and would eventually become AOC wines, AOC being like the highest quality ones. 
uh, within a few years. So this classification was officially abolished in 2011, and the highest of the pre-2012 categories was the AOC classification, which made up over 50% of total French production. So when you think about it, like half the wine made in France was like, the good stuff. <laughs> um, yes. So AOC wines come from very specific locations. Um, these are often called appellations within France. Um, and they are highly, highly regulated in what kind of grape varieties and winemaking methods can be used. So, yeah. And I know like we're a little confused talking about this because it's, it's confusing. There's like so many different classifications and, and I was <laughs> doing the research for this and then found out like halfway through it that in, oh, in 2012, they decided to just change their laws. Yeah. Surprise, like, surprise. The French have a complicated system for ranking wines. <laughs> and then it, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> And then the EU have their own thing going on, so it's just it's just crazy. But yeah. in 2006, um, primarily out of fears of decreasing sales for the lower classifications of their table wines, um, and partly from you know increased competition from the New World, which I don't know like why Australia. we still call it that, but that's what it's called. Well, not just the New World, but Australia, yeah, Australia typically. Too, yeah. The Australian wines just which took I guess a... are technically New Worldish. Eh, yeah, sort of. Um, so in in 2006, they introduced um, a system that would, was kind of an overhaul of the original AOC system and was fully introduced uh, into the industry as of 2012. Uh, the biggest change to the system was the removal of the Von de Tab and Von de Pace categories. Uh, and, you know, most of the Von de, uh, Von de Tab wines uh, have been replaced with a designation called Von de France, uh, kind of encompassing most of those, those table wines, ones that are primarily used as a French wine. They're not a Burgundy or a Champagne or something like that. Uh, this new classification, however, also allows you know, this lowest category of wines to include the grape variety in their labeling, uh, which the French government kind of believed it would improve their marketability. Uh, pre-2012, pre uh, a table wine like this wasn't, wasn't really allowed to say what kind of grapes were in it. Yeah, you weren't um, allowed to call your table wine a Cabernet. Yeah. You had to market it under some like other name, like red wine. Yeah, which is and, really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and the, the difference in quality... This is maybe a bit of an aside, but the difference in quality between a red wine produced in, you know, California that's just called red wine and a red wine that's produced in France and called a red wine is like kind of astronomical. So like it was this sort of French were sort of tying their own hands behind their backs. Yeah. And uh, the Von de Pay wines, uh, which was kind of that next level up, uh, were largely re replaced with an intermediate category called the Indica... Indica I give up. Indication um, géographique protégée. Yeah, so a kind of more geographical indicator called the IGP. So it was this, this middle level. Uh, the AOC classification then was renamed the AOP with, instead of control, it's protégé. Um, uh, and nothing really changed a whole lot. Um, most of the, the names of the Appalachian, Appalachians uh, stayed the same. There's just a few changes within labeling terminology, um, but most of the regulatory requirements themselves have remained the same. Uh, the French government didn't really change a whole lot um, after that. So, and wines that were previously classified under the, the defunct VDQS system, which was that kind of that purgatory wine system. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Purgatory. Uh, under that classification, uh, now must gain approval to become AOP wines. There is no longer this waiting period. Um, or they just downgrade them to that IGP, the, that middle level. And yeah, that's a lot of acronyms. 
um, we've been dealing with. But, you know, the EU has their own thing going on, exactly. too. Exactly. That's had even more acronyms. Um, so, yeah, I just mentioned a little bit earlier, EU, they've got their own classification system called the Quality Wines Produced in, spe- in Specified Regions. Because, um, you know, like everything else the EU does, the length of that name is both burdensome and unnecessary. Nice. That system is based on the uh, traditional French AOC system, uh, though it's been amended to account for the preferences and methodology of other European growers. Mm. Uh, so while this EU system regulates both labeling and winemaking, uh, its focus is more on winemaking practices, since the details of quality classifications and uh, labeling practices are generally part of the stricter national wine laws. Yeah, which I think makes sense to some extent. Um, it seems like the point of these laws are basically to protect the brand of national wines or regional or local in a lot of these cases. And so it doesn't really make sense yeah. necessarily to have the EU have to say exactly, well, this is what you can put on your label. Um, whereas like the French government seems like they'd be more able to do that. Which is kind of strange because I mean the EU does do a lot of stuff where it will protect a specific brand of stuff. Like I've, yeah. we've talked before about feta cheese. Like mm-hmm. Under EU regulations, you can't call your cheese feta unless it's made in Greece. Um, so, I mean, that is what it's doing here, but I think, I guess they're just more outsourcing the very specific nature of yeah. some of the labeling requirements. Yeah. Well, anyway, the whole basis of this system of classifying wines based on where they're grown and caring so much about where a specific wine is from uh, is based on an idea that is extremely popular in France, but also among winemakers in many other countries as well, called terroir, which claims that the land, and that's spelled like terror, but with an I after the O. So it's T-E-R-R-O-I-R, terroir, which claims that the land from which the grapes are grown imparts a unique quality that is specific to that growing site, to that vineyard. Um, So, for example, a wine made in Bordeaux should be differentiatable from a wine made from the same variety of grapes in Burgundy. And the concept of terroir is uh, applied to other kinds of crops as well, including like coffee, chocolate, hops, tomatoes, even maple syrup, and tea especially as well. Um... And environmental factors that impact the crop can include climate, soil type, local topology, uh, and even the kinds of other plants that are growing near the vineyard because of uh, factors like cross-pollination. But the actual significance of terroir is it's debated within the wine industry uh, because makers of the new world, if we're going to use that term, uh, wines, they tend to be much more skeptical of its significance because, of course, they would be. They're not growing their wines in the ancient winemaking regions of France, and they can't claim it as, like, branding power. But uh, French winemakers are <laughs> totally adamant that French wine can only be produced in France. And as somebody that's had, you know, some good Californian wines and some good Australian wines, I have to say, like, I I mean, I, I at the same time, I do think there is something to the French claim that, that just the best wine in the world is made in France. And maybe that's because of the soil in France, or maybe it's because people in France freaking love wine and they're, and they're obsessed with it. And in most cases, it's like a small family business kind of thing. But they craft the wine with great care. Yeah, per- yeah I mean, I personally, and in small batches. I personally don't know. I just don't know enough about wine to really, and I've definitely never tried like really fancy French wines. Actually, some but, of my favorite wines know. I've tried have been from Portugal really interesting yeah. uh, but i'm just i don't know i'm just super skeptical that like each individual little part of france actually makes a significantly different kind of 
kind of wine. I just yeah, I just don't know. And there's a lot. There's a lot of them. There's like oh, yeah, a there's lot a of different kinds yeah. of wine. Um, as a on the on uh, INIO's website, which is that that organization that kind of governs all this, um, as of according to them, as of as of 2015, there are 366 different kinds of French wines or brandies that have this AOC designation, which means there are 366 varieties of wine that all supposedly have their own unique taste and quality. Like they ha- like legally, I think they have to be differentiable from each other in order to gain this AOC classification. That's kind of crazy to me. And, and maybe it's just cause I'm some peasant who doesn't drink French wine ever. I don't, I'm, I'm just super skeptical about this. Um, yeah, I mean, we're more beer guys, and I'll admit that I'm more of a beer guy than a wine guy. But, but I'll also like, admit that most IPAs taste the same. Yeah. And, and, and I am a big beer guy. Here's the thing. <laughs> I think that there are maybe like maybe a hundred different discernible styles of beer. And most of those you can fit into like four different categories. Right. The, the palate that you develop as a beer taster I think in, in many people would say it's much, many people in the know would say that it's much less sophisticated than the palate you develop as a wine drinker. A sommelier can tell the difference. An experienced sommelier, I mean, maybe they're just making this up. Probably they are. But because if your job is to be able to tell the differences between different kinds of wine, like you're going uh, to you're gonna be able to tell the difference. <laughs> oh, this one is oaky, whereas this one is a bit more charred tasting. Like, no, come on. But at the same time. I mean, I'm sure they do like wine taste tests and like. Maybe. At least sort of I, try I, to figure this out. Maybe. I just don't know. The, all I'm saying is the people who are in the know claim that you can tell the difference. But I am just some English savage. <laughs> they also tell me, like, the, the I people, think French wine tastes good. That's all the, I know. in the know also tell me that, like, most like modern the, art is good. And I yeah. disagree about that. Um, but, you know, we're a little off topic. Uh, all I know <laughs> as is we, as we always I like yeah. Petite Syrah. That's <laughs> I like tannic wines. That's fine. Um, but... Since there are so many of these appellations, uh, they are often seen as part of a more specific wine-producing region uh, within the country. There's often seen as 14 different regions uh, throughout the, the nation of France and Corsica, uh, the island of Corsica, um, including Alsace? Alsace. Alsace. Like Alsace There's always like one less syllable than I expected. Alsace French. is almost in Germany. Yeah. yeah. Alsace, yeah Alsace, Alsace, Alsace is on the eastern side, which is primarily a white Rhine region, uh, Bordeaux, which is primarily a red wine region. Best and then, wine in the world comes from Bordeaux. Um, Burgundy, which has both red and white wines. And then there's, you know, 11 other different regions throughout, throughout the country. Um, Burgundy is actually one of the most uh, terroir-conscious areas in France. They really care about that, that we have the best earth, uh, or our earth is special type of thing. Um, and they include actually the most of the AOC designations within any of the specific uh, 14 regions they actually split up into four sub-regions and then into more specific designations after that um and even the small island of corsica has nine different aoc regions um, that make very specific wines um and even when the uh, vandape designation was in was still in style they had their own designation for the for the island which i'll buy that a little bit more because you know it's a it is an island um, off the coast, I can see that. Yeah, you know, it probably has very different soil conditions, yeah. very different precipitation too. Mm-hmm. But um, so anyway, to the French, the most important classification because of their belief in this terroir concept uh, is is where the wine is made. The most important classification is its location, right? But 
the grape variety is also very important, and there are over 15, uh, not 15, 50. There are over 50 different varieties of grape that are used for French wines. And, uh, you know, while Cabernet Sauvignon, the old Cab Sauv, uh, is the king of wine globally, Merlot is probably the most, well, it is, right? It is the most commonly harvested right, quite a bit. variety of grape in France. Yeah. So for AOC wines, specific appellations are only permitted to use a small number of grape varieties uh, based on what thrives best in that region. And wines produced from a blend of grape varieties are also produced, but they're rare and they're not all, not often among the highest quality French wines, although you can get some very, very good blended French wines. It, that it, it can produce a truly excellent wine, but the best French wines typically are composed of a single grape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that this is sort of an interesting segue into the concept of, of uh, protectionism that we constantly keep coming back to when we do these shows. Like, how is this different than the the Reinheitsgebot, right? Well, German efficiency for one. Like, the French have all these complicated designations. The Germans have beer and not beer. Yeah, that's, I guess that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is really interesting. Like, they do have this kind of similar goal on the surface where they're like, all right, we have this brand and we need to protect it. Mm. And it's very important. And I'll, I'm not going to take that away from them. I think they're, they're right. I think our episode kind of on the, the those German beer purity laws kind of changed my mind on maybe some of these things are actually important. But I don't actually think that the French need 366 different varieties of wine and that they need to be this crazy about it. Um, I, I, and I, I, they're very similar goals, but they're so, so different in implementation. The Germans are like, all right, we have a thing. We call it German beer. Here's what it is. You can't do anything else. The French are like, hey, we're really special and we want to be unique and make the world think we're really cool. So we're just <laughs> going to make 366 different versions of this thing and we're going to sell them at premiums because you can only get them in this tiny little region that probably has like five people and like 500 sheep. See, I think that there's, I'm going to play 500 sheep. To play devil's advocate, the purpose of this law, aside from it reflecting, like I already said, I think the, the naturally more varied taste profiles in within wine um which it very well may um i think that this law is designed more to promote localism Mm -hmm. right so if your family-owned vineyard produces in burgundy produces this specific appellation i'm just gonna call them appellations you know i can't keep saying appellation like i know what the hell i'm talking about but if your family vineyard is one of the few that produces this kind of wine and it's known throughout the world as being an extraordinary wine because you've been producing it this way for 200 years and you survived the downy mildew and the black rot and your wine is of quality. And then some jerk in Australia can call his wine by the same name as yours and sell it for $10 less on the bottle and make a, you know, make money off of the brand that you've built with your centuries of craftsmanship. I can see why the French would have a problem with that. Um, and I can see why they would have a problem with that even within the region of France where the laws actually apply because it's not like there's a ton they can do to stop the Australian guy. But if if some guy in northern France wants to make a wine that's using the brand of this guy in southern France, I mean, I think that that can be problematic because you're you're confusing 
the consumer in a way. And you're also mm-hmm. confusing types of wine and you're confusing um, the brand identity that the French have built. But to, to, for, you know, to your point, John, it is certainly almost certainly a marketing yeah. tactic. Yeah. More than yeah. anything else. Well, and that actually like, that's an interesting connection that brings up something interesting because um, it's sort of a distinction there with the Reinheitsgebot again. So that's one thing we talked about, like in that episode is that it really makes it difficult for a lot of German brewers to differentiate themselves. You know, we talk about how, like, to us, like, we really don't know a lot about the distinctions between German breweries because they all kind of taste the same. And, you know, over in Europe, like, people are a little bit more aware of the different brands, but they're still very limited how they can differentiate themselves. Whereas this, you know, for all of its problems, definitely makes it easier for the... The, That's true. For at least the different regions to set themselves apart. That is true, and and I would argue that that is better for small businesses than you know because you've seen in Germany we talked about the the pilsnerization of German beer where mm-hmm. the very large companies succeed by making a lot of the you know traditional German beers and they cut costs and even in some cases they cut corners. And they produce more of this beer that, yeah, it's maybe quality because that's what the Germans expect from their beer. But it squashes regionalism and it squashes um, vibrancy in a way. And they sacrifice um, variety to efficiency. And I think the French have gone maybe a little bit too far in the opposite direction, right. saying we're going to sacrifice efficiency to variety. So, and what- But then again, it, it, it works pretty well because the French produce a crap ton of wine and they drink a crap ton of wine and everybody else in the world drinks a crap ton of french wine too so and when 50 percent of the wine produced in your country is like the top stuff in the world maybe you're doing something right it just makes me wonder though like generally when from like kind of a an economic point of view or like a free market idea when we talk about like innovation or entrepreneurship and variety in like Mm -hmm. the most meaningful sense it's entrepreneurs kind of taking an idea and running with it and seeing like it might fail and it might succeed. I think the problem with like the front, this French wine category system is that that's not at all what this is. This is you going to the government and you getting the government to put their nice little stamp of approval on your wine and kind of artificially saying that you're special hmm. and like you might not be. Uh. Touche. And as, I, the, as the French would say, oh, touche, right. monsieur. And I, and I think, well, while you're right, while you're right that it does... You have hoisted me by my own petard. And while you're right in the sense that it, like, it's sort of better than the Reinheitsgebot, in the sense that it oh, does... I think it's, it's without a doubt better than the Reinheitsgebot. That it does in, yeah. like allow variety. It certainly doesn't allow innovation or entrepreneurship, though. Because sure. like it, you can't you can't argue that, because that's, that's exactly the opposite of what these, is, what these are. These are old entrenched vine- vineyards that have the ability to go to the government and say, I'm the only one who's allowed to do this. So I think you're right, but I don't think it matters. And here's why. That's probably, uh, because I, I think that that's, there are some things that like innovation is unnecessary for like the mm-hmm. winemakers art is an ancient one and we've basically perfected it. And in fact, in places where we try to get too innovative and we try to increase efficiency and move away from the old ways, you end up making crappier wine for the mm-hmm. most part. You look at like a Trader Joe's. No, nah, I don't want to crap on Trader Joe's. I buy all my wine there. But like they Wouldn't produce. Be the first time we've done that. <laughs> they produce very cheap wine, and I think a lot of it is produced with 
very modern production techniques that drives the cost down and maybe it also you know they're not aging it for a long time in in barrels yeah i mean i know they they're styles of wine that are meant to be drunk young but at the same time i just think it reduces the quality they do have a french section but i guarantee those are uh von de france wines yeah i mean i will say like one of the top ranked wines in the world is sold at sam's club it's like a 1050 bottle yeah sam's club wine probably not ranked by the french though no but you know (laughs) biases uh. yeah well and here's the thing too is that like the counter example to the one that i just gave is that in the united states we didn't have any real laws like this to my knowledge there was no regionalist kind of protectionism protection regionalist protectionism (laughs) i I wrote hayek um (laughs) but there were there weren't any laws like this and the u.s wine industry turned out fine some excellent wines are made in california some terrible wines are made in New York. And the region, you know, the reason why good wine is made in California and bad wine is made in Pennsylvania, you know, crap on Pennsylvania wine because it's not very good, is because Pennsylvania is not a good place for grapes. Like that's it. And California is. And, you know, like I think really it comes down to just the luck of the draw. Like what is your region like and is it a good place to grow a good kind of grape? And some of that is, you know, even if there weren't these kind of laws in place, the French would have figured that out, right? That, and, and we figured it out in the United States. You know, we grow Cabernet grapes and we do it very, very well. And we make excellent Cabernets in this country. And we make, you know, a decent Pinot in this country too. And um, your, your Mundavis and your, your Napa Valley wineries are making decent wines. And they're not doing it because the law is telling them they have to do it this way. They're doing it because they figured, oh, this grape grows best here. And that makes a kind of wine that a lot of people like to drink. And so we'll make it. And that's, uh, there is something to be said for that, I think. Yeah. And I guess one, one way that this might really benefit the French too is, at least for a lot of Americans, I think, like vineyard tourism is a big thing. Oh, yeah. It so is. it's not just that you enjoy drinking wine, it's that you enjoy going to vineyards and you enjoy looking at the beautiful beautiful landscapes and Ro- rows of and grapes. those kinds of things. And I think oh I think the one one good thing this law probably does do is that if you have an AOC wine and you know exactly where it's from, you can basically probably go to that exact vineyard if you enjoy that wine. And if you really want to, you can go to that vineyard and you can enjoy that wine on site and you don't really have to worry about is this really the place i got it from like there's not a sourcing problem at all yeah although i don't this kind of designation like if it's from france and it has this seal on it you know i mean probably within a very small area within france where exactly where it's from true 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 also i don't know how welcoming the french vineyard owners are going to be like oh come on into our secret wine place yeah i I don't know come join us for some cirrhosis of the liver (laughs) nice (laughs) got it i just slipped that one in uh but no like well because i yeah i mean i don't don't know if wine tourism is as big a thing yeah it's it's huge in california i don't know it is yeah but california is just constantly nice all the time forever so I think that's our show for today. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please uh, subscribe and share. You can like us on Twitter as the Whiskey Rebels Podcast. Nope, that's on Facebook. <laughs> like us on Facebook as the Whiskey Rebels Podcast. Or follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast. Uh, this has been the Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans. I'm I'm John Nelson. <laughs> Enjoy our podcast responsibly. <laughs> <laughs>